Romans chapter 8. And today I would like to focus on verses 18 through 25. So let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let me just read the passage first, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, reading through verse 25, hear now the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... Then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Amen. Lord God, bless our study this morning. Help us to appreciate these words. And may we live our lives in hope. And may we persevere with a steadfast, unflinching perseverance. May we be faithful and loyal to Jesus because of the hope that is set before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this section of scripture. In the previous passages, the Apostle Paul has just mentioned how wonderful it is and how great it is that we're children of God. And God, because we're his children, we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God has claimed us as his own. God has sent forth his Holy Spirit to be with us as a sign and seal that we belong to God. We're his children. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, as is mentioned here in Romans 8, is that the Spirit bears witness with my spirit. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that we belong to God. We're His children. God wants us to have that confidence that we're His. God wants us to have that confidence that there's no condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus. God does not want us to be scared off by the devil who wants us to think that we're all not good enough. Oh, we've sinned one too many times to still be God's uh, beloved people. God wants us to know that we're his people, loved with an everlasting love, and the Apostle Paul will develop that even more so as we read through Romans 8. But he's brought up that important point. We are children of God. And then Paul says that means something else too. It not only means we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's bearing witness that we're God's children, but it also means that we're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. In other words, God and Jesus Christ has lots of good things in store for us. All the good things that God is going to give to his son in the future, we're going to be part of those things. We're going to enjoy those things as well, right alongside Jesus Christ as his beloved children. And then at the very end of verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, We're 
heirs of God and we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus, seeing that we suffer together with Jesus, that we may also be glorified together with Jesus. So the Apostle Paul has now touched on two important points. One of them we don't like to talk about. One of them we wish wish didn't happen. That's the suffering part. In this life, this life is a life of suffering. Jesus entered into this world. He became human. He assumed a human body and and entered into suffering. Let's face it, we suffer. We suffer loss because people die. We suffer the loss of loved ones. Oftentimes we suffer injury. We suffer disease. We suffer illness. We suffer pain. Sometimes we suffer abuse and we suffer fear. We often suffer both mental and emotional anguish as well. We suffer from injustice and violence and evil. Uh, And there is also the suffering that we experience because we belong to Jesus. I guess one way of saying it is that right now in this world, it's just the way it is. This life, this world, because we're under the curse of sin, is a life of suffering. And as you well know, Jesus suffered. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was despised. He was nailed to the cross. He suffered abuse. He suffered rejection. He suffered mistreatment. He suffered uh, injustice. And he suffered death. He suffered. And just by living this life, we are suffering with Jesus. But the Apostle Paul says something else. We're going to be glorified together with Jesus. So there's that coming glory. So now the Apostle Paul in verse 18 goes on to explain. He's going to talk more about this suffering. And he's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's going to talk about this suffering. But he's also going to talk about the coming glory that's going to be ours. So notice again, verse 18, we have that word for. It's amazing how many times that word for introduces verses in Romans 8. Paul says one thing in a general way, and then he goes on to explain and elaborate. And that's what he's doing in these verses, verses 18 through 25. So he says there in verse 18, For I consider, Paul says, I've thought about this, all good Christians have thought about this, and this this is our firm resolve. This is our understanding of God's goodness. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present life, this present epic, this present season, are not worthy, not even fit, to be compared with the glory that's going to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, you notice the contrast there? Paul is making a contrast between this present time and the glory that's going to be ours at the coming of Jesus. So he's contrasting two periods of time, the now time and the time that is yet to be. And you might well imagine, say, an old-fashioned balance scale where you have a beam in the middle and you have, uh, say, a triangular arm going out and you have two trays. Um, they're often used for trading in the ancient world. But, but if you could just imagine, if we piled up all the suffering that people suffer in this world, all of the anguish, all of the misery, all of the abuse, all of the injustice, all of the wrongs, all of the evil, and we piled it on one side of this balanced scale, it would be heavy. And it would sink down a lot. But then the Apostle Paul says, no matter how bad this life is, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be ours. So on the other side, we can put all of the glory, all of the weight of the glory, and all of the gifts that are going to be ours at the second coming of earth. We can put it on the other side of the scale and it would drop right down to the floor. It would outweigh all of the misery and the suffering on this side. Paul says it's not worthy to be compared. Now, is the Apostle Paul trying to belittle and make fun of the sufferings of this life? No! No way! Paul is not diminishing the sufferings of this life, but he's trying to show us how great and how awesome and how spectacular 
the glory that is coming for us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, the person who wrote these words knew what it was like to suffer. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. In fact, before we go to, I want to go to uh, 2 Corinthians, just read some of the things that the Apostle Paul suffered. But notice even in this chapter, go down to verse uh, uh, 35, if you will, 35. uh, The Apostle Paul is going to bring up this subject of suffering again. He's not finished with it, but he's going to bring it up again later in the chapter. And he's going to posit a question there in verse 35. Well, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall extricate us or or yank us out of being objects of Christ's love? And so the Apostle Paul lists a number of things. He shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine. That would be the lack of food or nakedness, the lack of clothing and shelter or peril. Any dangerous situation or sword, perhaps the sword of martyrdom. Shall any of these things, any of these horrific experiences of human suffering and anguish, shall any of these things extricate us from the love of Christ? And the resounding answer will be no. It's always the lot of God's people to suffer. And then if you will, keep your finger in Romans 8. But if you will, go to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And here in this chapter, by the way, the Apostle Paul resorts to boasting and bragging about his experiences to shut up the false apostles and to make sure Christians, true Christians, aren't going to listen to the false apostles. Because the false apostles were acting so proud and pompous about their achievements and their talents and their skills and their knowledge. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, look, but those false apostles, guess what? They haven't suffered like I've suffered. And the proof of my ministry is that I have suffered. They're not willing to suffer. They're not willing to undergo discomfort and inconvenience like I have. And so sort of Paul resorts here to, you might say, mentioning his weaknesses and his suffering uh, as a way to quiet and and quell these uh, false apostles and anybody in the church of Corinth for really paying attention to them. So he says in verse 22, this is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, and and again, now he's referring to those false apostles, those people who claim to be something for Christ but really weren't. He says, are they Hebrews? So perhaps they were Jewish. He says, well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So in other words, Paul is kind of implying here, well, why do you keep putting me down? Why do you keep writing me off? I I have just as much in my resume as they do. Now notice what he says. In verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In other words, I am more so a minister of Christ. And here's why. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. That would be stripes inflicted by the good old-fashioned Roman flogging. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. In other words, I was in death, death, uh, uh, situ- death-like situations, or, or dangerously death situations, if you will. Uh, verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So at least five times he, he, was, he got a good old flogging with 39 stripes. That must have inflicted a lot of pain. He says in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Maybe that's what he refers to an axe that happened at Lystra. Uh, stoned and thrown out of the city. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils or dangerous situations of waters. 
in perils or dangerous situations of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Uh, so Paul was often in very dangerous situations, uh, you know, sort of walking right al- along a fine line with death and life. Verse 27, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, beside the other things which comes upon me daily, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and am I not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. I will boast in the things which concern my weakness. Now back to Romans chapter 8. Back to Romans chapter 8 verse 18. I want you to know that the man who penned these words, for I consider that that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, is a man who knew what it was like to suffer. And he suffered greatly. Well, that's really good news, folks. Because no matter how bad things get in this life, they're going to be great when Jesus comes. And that's what we're supposed to keep our eye on. Paul is not belittling or trying to make our suffering seem like nothing. He's trying to get us to realize how great and how awesome the coming glory that will be ours. And notice in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, compared with the glory, that's the glory of God, The glory of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God, all the love and the mercy and the compassion, all the gifts of God that's going to be revealed, where? In us. It's not just that God's glory is going to be shown to us. It's not just that we're going to sit there and, you know, sort of be spectators and see the glory of God way out there. The very magnificence of God is going to change us and God will make us glorious. Wow, that's amazing. I think part of this has to do, and, and we'll learn this as we read on, but I think in uh, Philippians chapter 3, for our citizenship is not in heaven, but we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to change the bodies of our humiliation, that they might be made like unto his glorious body, like unto his glorious resurrection body. We will be raised from the dead. We will have a body that will never, never, ever die again. It will be a spiritual body. It will be wonderful. No more aches, no more pains, no more persecution, no more sin, no more evil. We will have triumphed all over all of that in the power of Jesus' name. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy. They're not even fitting. It's not even appropriate to begin to compare the sufferings of this time with the glory of God that will be revealed and displayed to all creation in us at the second coming of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to explain, verse 19. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, all creation, and and I've read a few commentaries here, and some feel that all creation is referring to the physical material world. And the Apostle Paul is personifying the physical material world. Um, That's often uh, the way it is in Psalms. Oftentimes the physical material world is personified and and almost uh, spoken of as having human-like quality. So the physical material world is just eagerly awaiting and eagerly designed the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the revealing of the sons of God is going to be so great, so wonderful, so spectacular, that all creation, all the entire physical material world can't wait till that moment comes. It's a momentous time. 
and the outworking of God's plans and purposes. And it's going to be so great, so awesome, that all creation is just eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, why is it? Well, there's a little problem with creation right now. Creation is, uh, I don't know how to say it, sort of out of whack. It's out of sync. It's out of harmony with God because of our human sin. We're the chief actors uh, in, in the drama of this world and of this universe. God made us the crowning glory of his creation. We've sinned, we've rebelled against God, we've incurred the curse of God's judgment. And even all creation is out of whack, out of sync, not in harmony with God. Something's amiss. So notice verse 18, verse 20 now, for the creation, and again we might be thinking of the physical material world perhaps, for the creation was subjected to futility. Uh, the creation was subjected to transitoriness. Um, the creation was subjected to purposelessness or, or a sense of emptiness. Not willingly, it's not because creation wanted it to be this way, but because of him, because of God, who subjected the creation to this experience in hope that one day it will be delivered. Creation can't wait for the second coming of Jesus. And if the creation can't wait, if the rocks and trees and sky and seas can't wait for the, the second coming of Jesus and the revealing of the sons of God, well, we, we should just be eagerly awaiting the second coming of Jesus too. Notice verse 21. Uh, because the creation itself, this is why the creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God at the second coming of Christ. Because verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered, in other words, will be set free from the bondage, from the slavery of corruption. will be set free from slavery to corruption. be set free from that into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So when Jesus comes at the second coming, the children of God, that's us, you and me, we're going to have some, we're going to have, we're going to have a new profound liberty. Uh, we're going to have a newfound freedom that we don't experience right now. Remember back in chapter, uh, chapter 8 here, verse 2, same chapter, verse 2. Uh, Paul wrote, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Has set me free. Has liberated me from the law, from the power of sin and the power of death. Perhaps in verse 20, this futility that creation is feeling is the same thing that Paul mentions in verse 21 when he talks about slavery to corruption or the bondage of corruption. Maybe that futility of verse 20 is the uh, bondage of corruption in verse 21. You know, as we look at our world, everything, everything seems to move towards deterioration, disintegration. Everything tends to fall apart. Our cars fall apart if we don't maintain them well. Our houses all fall apart. Wood rots, wood deteriorates. Animals die, we die, we get sick, we get ill. Everything seems to be a cycle of life and death, life and death, birth and, and death. And somehow there's coming a new day. When all creation will be set free from this bondage, this slavery, this servitude to corruption, to the principle of death and decay and deterioration and corruption that is at work in our world, and will be and it will be liberated, and they will enjoy the same glorious liberty as the children of God, set free from death and mortality. Verse twenty-two. Paul goes on with another four to elaborate again. Now he's really focusing on, on, on the present dilemma of the suffering, the suffering and the anguish and the misery of which this world is presently under. Verse 22, he says, For we know, Paul doesn't need to tell anybody, we all know, we Christians know, every human being knows, we know that the whole creation, the whole created order, groans 
It moans. It's an agony. And then he uses another uh, picturesque phrase here. And labors with birth pains together until now. He uses a word that is often used of a woman in labor. uh, Undergoing the the, the pain uh, of childbirth. And so Paul says all creation is under this, this moaning, this groaning, this pain, this anguish right now. And with that imagery of a woman in labor ready to give birth to a child... Um, the imagery actually carries over because there's pain for the moment, but then when the child is born, the woman's pain goes away and she heals and recovers from being in labor and and something very wonderful and good has happened. A child has been born. So all creation is under this uh, this present dilemma of suffering. And then Paul says in verse 23, and not only that, but we also, we Christians... So perhaps when Paul spoke of all creation in verse 22, he was not including Christians. But now in verse 23, he includes us, even we Christians, not only they, but not only all creation, but even we, we Christians, we who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we to whom God has said, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we who have been blessed by God, and God has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts so that we can cry out and say, Abba, Father, and know that God loves us with an everlasting love. Even we who have all of these blessings, even we, right now, What does the text say? Even we ourselves, we groan, we groan within ourselves. We have pain, we have misery, we have suffering, we have anguish, we have fear. That's our present lot. That is our present experience. But what does verse 23 say? Even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. By the way, that phrase guarantees that God will give us a lot more things. God has given us the Holy Spirit, you might say, as as a first harvest and that guarantees many more harvest of his blessings to come. Uh, the Holy Spirit is like a, a down payment, a guarantee that God is going to give us more installments of his grace and his benefits. Even we who have the first fruits of it, we groan within ourselves. What does verse 23 say? Eagerly, eagerly waiting for the adoption. That is the redemption of our body. Our body isn't redeemed yet. Our soul is redeemed. Our spirit is redeemed. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit's working out His purpose in us. But our bodies still feel the weight and the curse of sin. We feel the weight of living in a sinful, evil world. We feel all of that weight right now. But we look forward to the day when we will be delivered. Delivered from this bondage of corruption into this glorious liberty that God is going to give us at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now in verses 24 through 25, Paul tells us why this is so meaningful, why this is so profound, and why this is so important to us Christians. Because we have hope. This world is not all there is to live. Notice what he says in verse 24. For we were saved in this hope. God saved us. God redeemed us. God brought us to himself, forgave us all of our sins, gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, just so we could specifically enjoy this hope. We could have this optimism. We could have this happy anticipation, this happy expectation concerning a glorious future, which unbelievers do not have and do not share. But we, we Christians were saved in this hope. We were saved in the sphere of hope. We have hope like no one else has. And I've said before, I'll say it again, as Christians, we should be the most hopeful people in all the world. Not because we live in the United States or because we enjoy all the blessings of, of living in this country. Although that's good, that we appreciate all that, but because we're God's people. And God's people, no matter where they live, 
and what their circumstances are in any country around the world has the hope that the Apostle Paul is describing here in this chapter. We were saved in this hope. But then he goes on to say, but hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one hope for what one sees? In other words, you don't hope. You don't hope for what is a present reality. Just to use a very down-to-earth experience. I don't need to hope. I don't need to hope or live in hope of getting well if I'm already well. I don't need to have the hope of maybe getting a new car or a better vehicle if I already have a new car (laughs) sitting under the carpet. In other words, you do not hope for what you already have. You do not hope for what is a present reality. You hope for what you do not have. You hope for what is not your current reality. And so Paul then says, verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, if we hope for what is not our present reality, if we hope for what we do not now have, then what's our only recourse? Then we eagerly wait for it with what? With perseverance. We eagerly, patiently, with God's grace and in God's mercy, we wait for it. We patiently wait for it, keeping our eye fixed on the hope set before us, keeping our eye fixed on what Jesus is going to do for us at the second coming of Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on the fact that we will be glorified together with Jesus at a second coming. So as we read through this uh, section of Scripture, we've noted the suffering, we've noted the glory, but now we note the hope that is ours that moves us to a life of endurance and perseverance. We Christians have every reason, more so than anybody else on this planet, to live a life of perseverance and endurance to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't this wonderful? Could God have given us anything better than this? I suppose would like this present life to be a life in which there's no suffering. I I wish we could just erase that part, but that's not the way it is in the outworking of God's purposes. In fact, maybe we'll appreciate the glory that will be ours at the second coming of Jesus because we've lived this life and we've been through suffering. And keep in mind, there's a lesson to be learned from the life of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, his experience was that of suffering. Then, after his experience of suffering on earth in a human body like our bodies, yet without sin... Then Jesus was raised from the dead. He acquired an immortal body, a body that will never die again. And then Jesus entered into his glory. Suffering first, then glory. That's what the life and ministry of Jesus teaches us. So let's remember those words. The words of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says, I reckon, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory of God that's going to be revealed in us because it's going to be so good, so great, and so wonderful. May God fill my spirit with hope and may God help me to persevere to all the plans and the purposes of God and may God do the same for you. May he fill your heart and your soul with a profound spirit of hope today and may he give you that that will, that determination to persevere to Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. And somehow I feel like, Lord, I just haven't done justice to what these words say. Lord, I pray that all of us, myself included, would just take the time to ponder these words, to think about what they really mean, and what they mean for each and every one of us. 
And I pray, Lord, that my life might be changed more and more as I meditate on these words. Not only the words of this passage this morning, but all the words of Romans chapter 8. Lord, transform us, change us. May your Holy Spirit powerfully work through your word to change us into Christ's likeness. Not only in our behavior, but as well as in our thoughts and our attitudes and our outlooks and our priorities and our desires in life as well. May your name be praised this day because your word has gone forth and has been planted in our hearts and our minds this day. May we cherish your word. May we eat it and absorb it like our daily food. We pray this for Jesus' sake, whom we love. Amen. Amen. Final hymn this morning. I suppose we could say it's a prayer. Savior, teach me day by day love's sweet lesson to obey you. Uh, Hymn number 713. Hymn number 713. And we'll stand as we sing all four stanzas. Really think of the words as we sing. Think about God's great love for us and the proper response that should be ours. 713. Savior, teach me day by day, love's sweet lesson.